I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. What was your reaction as you read those? My suspicion is that for those of us who are English, um, I am English, despite my skin color, um, our reaction is to instinctively pull back from this sort of an expression of emotion and hurt and pain. I think that generally speaking, we're, we're so uncomfortable with this kind of an expression of anguish that our instinct is actually to just write it off. I think our instinct would be to say, do you know what, David? I think you're being a bit of a drama queen. I'm sure that whatever it is that you might be going through, it isn't that bad. You're making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill at this point, aren't you? And I think that there's a few reasons for this. I think that firstly, um, well, firstly, I don't think it's just, it's not just true of the English. I think it applies to a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures. But I think firstly, for those of us who are in the UK context, we live in a culture obsessed with comfort. We spend our entire lives trying to make lives easier, more comfortable, more efficient, less troublesome. Our entire economy is driven by the desire to make living easier. Now, when you go home this evening, have a little look around at all the stuff that you own. I'm fairly certain that as you look around and as you take stock of all the things that you own, you'll come to the realization that the bulk of your money has been spent on making your lives easier somehow, more comfortable somehow. And all of us, Christians or not, have imbibed this obsession with comfort that, to a large extent, we're just not equipped to deal with sin and suffering and pain anymore. We're not equipped to deal with emotional turmoil. And so we run away from having to deal with it. And running away from it can take many different forms. And for the English, because, you know, sarcasm is our thing, we, 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 we run away from it by writing it off, by belittling it. But at this point, it's really important for us to remember that who's writing this psalm? We're told right at the beginning that this psalm is a psalm of David. David, the warrior king. David, the battle-hardened warrior. He's not really somebody who you describe as a drama queen. And so, rather than running away from these words, we would do well to face them and to take them seriously. Now, you know, that's not to say that it's never the case that some people sometimes um, express themselves in a dramatic way, um, and sometimes they, it, it could well be that they're making a mountain out of a molehill. But even when that's the case, the fact that they feel those emotions are still true, those emotions are still true to them, and belittling those emotions doesn't do anybody any good. 
And I'm going to use a really trite example to, to illustrate this so that so we, can, we can see from the minor thing to the major things. So, you know, many of you guys know um, I have two sons, um, Peter, who's three, and Eric, who's one. Um, Peter has recently, well, not recently, he's known for a long time how to tantra. Um, and, you know, one morning, um, we, I got him out of bed, I carried him downstairs, I put him at the dining table ready for his breakfast. I go over to our cereal drawer shelf. I take his box of cereal out. He loves Cheerios. And I realize that it's empty. No Cheerios. What do I do? I take out another box. I take out the shreddies, which, you know, sometimes he has for a snack. I pour that in. I give it to him. And before I know it, You know, the, the boy throws the biggest tantrum I have ever seen him throw over cereal. And my immediate instinct was to say to him, Peter, this is ridiculous. You're tantruming over cereal. And actually, that's exactly what I said to him. And so for about 10 minutes, we had this situation where I was basically shouting at him, because he was being ridiculous, because he was, um, and he was just shouting even louder back at me because I wasn't taking his emotions seriously. And then I remembered, um, you know, some of the stuff that I read about childcare, and I actually stopped and I just said, Peter, I realize that this is really hard for you, but we're out of Cheerios. There's nothing we can do about it. And as I sort of addressed his emotions on this issue, and as we chatted a bit more about it, I say chatted, he he just sat and listened. Um, I saw him relent. I I saw him relax. And eventually, the tantrum went to a quiet sob, and he started eating the shreddies. Success. Excellent. And that, that just beautifully illustrates, doesn't it, how actually, yes, emotions can be overblown, but telling somebody that they're being ridiculous doesn't help. Actually, what we need to do is address the, the, the very real feelings that they have um, and try to get them to see that it's actually out of proportion, but in a gentle kind of a way. Now, maybe you read these words from David and you, you, your instinct isn't to run away from them. You just don't understand them. You know, you've had a fairly easy life, You've not experienced pain at this kind of a level. You've been very fortunate and you've experienced God's grace and mercy in your life. But the fact of the matter is, we do live in a fallen world. Pain and suffering is all around us. And it's not going to be very long until either you or someone close to you has to go through something like this. And so it's still important for you to listen to what the rest of the psalm has to say about dealing with this kind of a suffering. Now, maybe you read these words and you don't run away and you do understand them, you don't belittle them. These words are your words. You read these words and you think, that's my experience. David here 
is describing the pain and the grief that I'm suffering right now. Maybe the only reason you're at the evening service is because you're just trying to distract yourself from the grief and the suffering that you're going through. And you're dreading going home and you're dreading bedtime because you know that the pain and the grief will hit you the minute you stop to think about them. And all you can do is cry yourself to sleep. Now, no words of mine will take that pain away. But I do hope that as we explore this psalm together, you will find comfort in God's presence with you. And hopefully this psalm will give you the words that you need to speak to God, even during the difficult times. So we're going to see three things in this psalm today. Um, Firstly, we're going to see how in times of distress, we need to turn to the Lord rather than turning in on ourselves. And secondly, in times of distress, we should ask for God's mercy and his favor and his presence. And thirdly, in times of distrust, when all else fails, all we can do is trust that God will hear us and deliver us. So firstly then, in times of distress, we turn to the Lord and not to ourselves. Now so often when we're going through a difficult time, whether it's a time of depression or of grief or or, or great stress, we turn in on ourselves and we turn in on those problems that we're going through. We resort to self-pitying. We replay events or situations that have caused us this pain over and over and over again in our minds. We dwell on the fact that we're having such a difficult time of it and we're completely obsessed with the events that are surrounding our suffering. But not so with David. The first thing David does is to call on the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, is literally the first word of this psalm. And the whole psalm is overwhelmingly centered around Yahweh rather than David himself or his situation. Yahweh is mentioned eight times in ten verses. The focus of the psalm is so firmly on Yahweh rather than David's situation. And actually, we can tell that David isn't focusing on the circumstances surrounding his suffering because we're not told any of the circumstances surrounding his suffering. You know, in other psalms, sometimes in the superscription, you know, that, that little bit at the beginning of the psalm, we're told about some of the circumstances surrounding the writing of the psalm. In fact, we, we, you know, all you have to do is look to the page on the left. You know, look to the page, uh, look, look to Psalm 3, where it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We're told in that psalm that David was writing the psalm as he fled from his son Absalom when he rebelled, that is, Absalom rebelled against David and set himself up as king. You know, I, I realize that this is an argument from silence, but given that what we know about human nature, that we're prone to dwell on the circumstances that cause us difficulties. I think the silence is a telling one. The fact that David does not tell us the circumstances of his suffering 
implies that we shouldn't dwell on it. And so the first example we have from David is that in our distress, rather than dwelling on the circumstances surrounding our distress, turning in ourselves, indulging in self-pity, our first response should be to turn to the Lord. But turn to the Lord and do what? And to say what? Well, David begins this psalm by asking for mercy. And this may well be a counterintuitive way for, uh, of praying for many of us. You know, many of us would be um, aware, and maybe a lot of us would be using the, the acts pattern of praying. We start with adoration, A. We start with meditating on God, his character, his mighty works, and then we move to confession, C where we come before him and confess our sins and our unworthiness to approach him. And this is followed by thanksgiving, T, for all the things that God has done for us and has given to us. And then, and then we move on to supplication, S, where we ask God for the things that we want. But David here comes straight out and asks for it. You know, that's a bit of a presumptuous prayer, isn't it? It's pretty arrogant and brazen to just come out and ask for what you want, isn't it? I mean, you know, again, for those of us who are English, as we, when we write our emails, when we want to ask for something from somebody, you know, we, we don't ever, we wouldn't dream of ever just coming out and writing what we want. No, 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 we have to have a solid paragraph on why we think the other person is a wonderful person. And then we'll ask for what we want. And even then, it's shrouded in sort of bizarre language, especially to our German and um, American friends. Um, you know, the, we, the, this kind of just coming out and asking for it is, is not only the kind of praying that we're not accustomed to culturally. Now, many of us will be uncomfortable with this. And yet, that's exactly what David does. Now, there are two reasons why this is not presumptuous to come out and ask God for mercy. Firstly, notice how God, how David addresses God. What does he call him? He calls him Yahweh. He calls him Lord. He calls him by his covenant name, the relational name. And in a sense, embodied in that one name is both adoration and thanksgiving. By calling on his covenant name, he's bringing to mind God's greatness in creation. His great gift in setting mankind up as stewards of his creation. And of the salvation that he has given to the Jewish people out of slavery from Egypt. In that one word, David adores his God, and he gives thanks to his mighty works. Secondly, notice what he's asking for here. He's asking for God not to discipline him and to not rebuke him. The question begs, doesn't it? Why would he need disciplining or rebuking? The answer is because he knows that he has done something wrong. He knows that he has sinned against God. And so implicit in asking for mercy is his confession of sin and guilt. It's like 
so often I would hear a mass crash in the living room. And I'd go in. And the first thing out of Peter's mouth is, don't tell me off, Daddy. You know for sure that he's done something wrong. When that's the first words out of his mouth. Now, in a three-year-old, that's not necessarily a confession, although I can take it as that. But because he might just be expressing his desire to not be told off for doing something wrong. But in an adult, you can see how that amounts to a confession of his sins. Now, you know, the act pattern of praying isn't biblically mandated. You don't have to do it. Um, there's no reason why we must pray in that particular way. So even if referring to God by his covenant name doesn't quite fulfill the requirements of adoration and thanksgiving, and asking for mercy doesn't quite fulfill the requirements of confession, it doesn't matter. It's still not presumptuous for David to straight out ask for mercy, and the reason is in verse 4. In verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. It is not presumptuous for us to pray like this to God because of his steadfast love for us. Because God loves us, because he's our heavenly father and he wants us to come and speak to him, especially when we have a great need. That's why we can go and immediately ask for his help. Now, can you imagine phoning your parents when you are in, in, in thousands of pounds worth of debt and then having to go through all the rigmarole of saying, oh, isn't it a wonderful day? You know, I hope you guys are doing well, etc., 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 before you can finally ask for that help. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And actually, if anything, it betrays a distance in that relationship. If you have a massive need, you call your parents up and you have to make small talk for 10 minutes before you can ask them for what you need. That means you're not as close to your mum and dad as you hope to be. And actually, if we're in the great need that David seems to be in, or that we are currently in, then, you know, to, to go through all that, just to ask for his mercy, has already told us all we need to know about our spiritual state. Because it means that we are so far away from God and that we are feeling that he's just not present with us anymore. But the thing is, God's love for us is so great that we can presume on him. We can expect more from him than just mercy. We can actually expect favor. We can actually expect his presence. Do you see that in verses 3 and 5? My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? He asks in verse 3 that the Lord will deliver him out of his troubles. And the thing is, you can tell how greatly distressed he is because those aren't his words. All he manages to say is, 
But you, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to let me suffer in this way? How long before you will heal me? How long before you will be gracious to me? Because I am languishing and my soul is troubled. And in verse 5, he asks for God's presence with him. He asked the Lord to return. Now, it's not that he ever thought that God had disappeared to nowhere. After all, in another psalm, Psalm 139, he meditates on God's omnipresence. He meditates on the fact that God is everywhere all the time. There's, in a sense, no way to get out of God's presence. However, sometimes we can be spiritually so far away from God either because of our sins or because of our suffering, or maybe even both, that sometimes it feels like he's just not present with us. And that's what he's asking for. He's asking for for God to restore that intimate relationship with him. And he knows that it's ultimately intimate relationship with the Lord that he can praise him. And we see there in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, in the Old Testament, death and Sheol speak of not just physical death, but of a spiritual separation from God. So, in Psalm 86, for example, David thanks God for rescuing him from the depths of Sheol. Clearly there, speaking of not physical death, but spiritual separation, because, well, David wasn't dead. Similarly, in Jonah 2, Jonah says that he cries out to God from the depth of Sheol, and God heard his voice. Again, speaking of spiritual spiritual separation and not of physical death. And so we see that in the depths of despair, in the suffering, the first thing David does is turn to the Lord. He asks for mercy. And on top of that, because of God's unfailing love as our Heavenly Father, David knows that he can presume upon him and ask him for his favor and presence, ultimately, so that he can praise him. Now, the other thing we see from David's example is his utter assurance that God has heard him and that he will be delivered. Now, look at the trust that David shows in the Lord in the last three verses of the psalm. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, in the context of this psalm, this looks like blind faith, doesn't it? You know, there doesn't seem to be any logical progression from verses um, 7 and 8 onto verses 9 and 10. He went from describing the pain that he's suffering immediately to this marvelous expression of the assurance that God has heard him and will put to shame all his enemies. And, and that's the thing. Sometimes when we're at the end of our tether, when we have nothing else left, 
when our suffering has gotten so great, when, we dis- when our despair is more than we can bear, the best we've got sometimes is just blind faith. Sometimes you just have to take the leap because you have nothing else to lose. All you can do is cast yourselves on the faith that God will hear you. Now, if you're not a Christian today and you've resonated with David's words somehow, follow David's example. Take the leap and ask for God to show you mercy and favor and pray that he would also allow you to come into his presence so that you may be saved from troubles and live eternally to praise him. Now, if you're a Christian today, you know that you have a bit more than David's blind faith, don't you? You know that God has already shown you his mercy and his favor, and that he is present with you in the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, don't you, that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy. You know that even though you're a sinner, even though you have done wrong things in your life, you know even though you have offended God in all sorts of ways in your life, you know that you have been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. You know that he came to this earth as a helpless baby, even though he was the prince of heaven. You know that he lived a simple life of a carpenter's son, even though he deserves all the praise and the glory of all the angels from all eternity. You know that he preached God's word. And even though some people responded, so many more people responded with hatred and with lies about him. You know that ultimately, when that had all happened, they conspired to arrest him, they conspired to put him in jail, and eventually put him to death. And you know that he suffered all of that on earth for you, so that you may be shown God's favor and mercy so that you can be forgiven for your sins. You know that Jesus came and he lived that perfect life for you, so that even though our sins have been given to him, he has given us his righteousness. He has shown us the ultimate favor in God, that we that God can look on us and see his righteousness and not our sins and show favor to us. And you know, don't you, that because of your faith in Jesus, you've experienced his real presence in your life because of what the Holy Spirit does in your life. Day by day, you have seen how you have grown in faith. Day by day, you have seen all the ways in which God is making you more and more into the image of his son. You have experienced this yourselves. You know so much more than any 
of the things that David knew. For you, your faith in God, in, in, in your assurance that God will show you mercy and favor and that he is truly present with you, that's not a blind leap of faith for you anymore. That is the reality that you live in each and every day. Now, I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. I mean, sometimes you think that you doubt whether that confession of faith that you made, maybe when you're a teenager, you think, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I, I didn't repent of my sins properly. And you know, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really die for me. And actually, that's what's caused you to go into this spiral of depression. Um, you, you fear for eternity. And all I can say to you is that what you must do, what you must do, is to not focus on how you feel. To not focus on you know, whether you think you're saved, but focus on what Jesus Christ has already done. Do not turn in on yourselves, but turn on to him. Cast all your despair, cast all your doubts on him and trust that he has saved you. You know that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy, favor, and his presence. If he has done this for us, for all of us, if we believed in Jesus, how much more would God do? Well, we know what he'd do. Because in his word, he has shown us a glimpse into the future. We know that in the future, we can look forward to an eternity of God's favorable presence with us. And a time where we can praise him forever and ever and ever and together with him. So if you're suffering right now, turn to God. Ask for his mercy, his favor and presence. Knowing that the Lord Jesus was the ultimate expression of those things. Knowing that God has already worked in history to, to, to do this. And even in the depths of your suffering, know that God has heard your prayer and know that you have an eternity heaven with him to look forward to if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you work all things to the benefit of those who love you. And yet so often it doesn't feel like that. Father God, we pray that you would help us to cast all our helplessness, all our despair on you and trust, blindly trust, that the Lord has saved us and you have heard us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.